This morning, I'd like us to do a bit of a thought exercise, a hypothetical example. And bear with me, I know it's going to be a little bit ridiculous. It's going to sound a little bit strange, but hopefully it will prove helpful if you'll go along with me for the ride, okay? So give me a little bit of indulgence this morning. I want you to imagine with me that today, when you arrive home from church and you get to your house and you're checking the mail, you find that there's a letter from a long-lost uncle, an uncle that you didn't know you had, that you didn't know was even out there. And though this uncle happened to grow up in tribal Siberia for some unexplicable reason, he recently discovered that he's related to you, okay? And so he sends this message to you, and he wants to get to know you, and so he's traveling here to Lincoln, Nebraska to meet his long-lost nephew, niece, whatever the case may be. When he arrives, he wants to know all about your life, all about the things you do and the activities you're involved in, but he doesn't have any context for what the culture is here in Lincoln, Nebraska. He doesn't know what you do. He doesn't know why you do it. He doesn't understand a whole lot about what you're engaged in. And so you begin to explain. You explain your job and why you go to work every morning. You explain your school and why you go to school every day. You explain any number of different things like your family or the rules to your kid's soccer game. And for some inexplicable reason, this individual knows English. Bear with me, okay? So he can understand the language that you're speaking, but he has no context for the things you're talking about, for the words and what that looks like in your life. And eventually Sunday rolls around and you mention that you'll be going to church on Sunday morning. And this too naturally confuses this uncle. He begins to pepper you with questions. What is church? Is it a place you go to? Is it an event you participate in? Is it some club or extracurricular activity you enjoy in your free time? Is it a hobby? What exactly is church? He said, why does it exist? What is it for? What is the purpose of it? Why do you engage in it? Why do you go? What is its value? What do you do when you're at church? Why do you all sing? Nobody gets together and just sings for any other reason. This is a very strange practice. Is your church a good one? Are there bad ones out there? What does this all mean? What does this look like? Why do you do it? And any number of various questions. And your desire is to try and answer these questions as best you can to this uncle who has no concept for what you're talking about. And I find myself wondering, how would you answer his questions? Would you have good explanations, good descriptions, good definitions to the questions he's asking you? Could you define the church? Could you describe it to this long-lost uncle? Or maybe more relevantly, how would you describe the church to an unbeliever or to someone who didn't grow up in the church, someone who has no context for what it is that we're talking about when we say the church? And I realize that for many of us, this feels like an unnecessary definition. We grew up around the church, we grew up in the church, and the church is the church, right? Everybody knows what the church is about. But I would submit to you that if our definition is built simply on instinct, How do we know if it is right? How do we know if it is biblical? I fear that for many modern evangelicals, our definition of church is drawn more from our past experience and more from our present personal experience than it is from what the Word of God actually teaches. So over the course of the next few months here in the spring, we're going to take an in-depth look at what the Bible teaches about the church. We're going to seek to evaluate our instincts and intuitions against what the Word of God actually teaches says. This study, this sermon series that we've entitled Church Basics, will consist of three parts. 
Here in January, we're going to do an introduction to the church in a series I'm calling Ecclesiology 101. Ecclesiology is just a big word for the study of the church. So we're going to introduce the theme. We're going to talk about the universal church and move to the local church. We're going to talk about theology and then move to practice in the local church. Then in February and March, we're going to study the book of 1 John. The study of the book of 1 John, which focuses primarily on fellowship. We'll call that series Fellowship 101. Before finally, ultimately resulting in April and May, studying the book of Titus in a study I've called Discipleship 101. The blueprint for what discipleship looks like in the church. And it is my prayer that by the time we're done, we'll each have a better idea of why Christ created the church. And what he is calling us to pursue and our individual purpose within that. But for this morning, my goal is simply to build some foundation for us, to give us some common definitions for the words that we're going to use, which means we need to answer two key questions in our time together here this morning. The first question we need to answer is, what is the church? What is this term, this entity that the Bible ref- or frequently references? From there, we need to answer the question, why then does the church exist? What is the church and why does the church exist? We'll do so by looking at seven key truths that Scripture lays out about the church here in our time together this morning. But before we dive into that, before we introduce our first text, I just want to take a moment and pray. Would you pray with me for our time together? Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here, to participate in and belong to the church, your bride. Father, as we've already sung, our goal, our desire, and our time together this morning is to magnify Christ to thank him for what he's done for us, to lift up his name and to declare him to those that don't yet know him. Father, I pray that that would be accomplished in our time together this morning. Lord, that you would cause me to speak the truth appropriately. Lord, that you would cause us to hear it appropriately. And through it all, Christ would be glorified. Christ would be magnified. The truth of the gospel would be lifted up and celebrated. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's get off to a good start with our first question, what is the church? Now, to answer this question, we could go to a dozen of different places in the New Testament. We could talk about the metaphors that the New Testament uses for the church, the body, the bride, the temple, the building, the flock. The term itself for church is the term ecclesia. It's used 109 times throughout Scripture. It's a handful of times used for other assemblies, but primarily speaking of the church of Jesus Christ. But what may shock you is how the term itself is used. Of those 109 times, 21 times in Scripture, the term church is used of the universal church in a general sense of all believers. We'll talk more about that here this morning. 34 times it is used in the plural of a regional group of churches, as if writing to those churches, the churches in this region or the churches in that area. But the predominant majority of the time, 50 times in Scripture, it is used of a specific local church assembly. The church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, the church in Rome. And we'll focus on both the universal and the local aspects in this study. But I find that one of the most helpful and fundamental passages on the universal nature of the church is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn to 1 Timothy in your Bibles, chapter 3. We're going to be looking first at verses 14 through 16. Now, in case you're unfamiliar, as you're turning there, 1 Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to his pastoral protege, Timothy, who is in Ephesus. 
And in the book, he lays out the fundamental principles for church oversight, for teaching, and for the running of a church. And it is within this conversation on church leadership, you'll notice the beginning of chapter 3 is about deacons and overseers, that we find our first reality about the church. Here, in 1 Timothy 3, we learn that the church is an adopted household. The church is an adopted household. Let me read verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Let me stop there for a moment. I'm going to read the rest of that here in just a second. Though this passage is chiefly about the obedient behavior of the believer, you notice that, right? So you should know how to behave. Paul makes an incredible statement here about the universal church. Did you pick up on what he called it? Paul calls the church, the universal church, the household of God. Imagine that. God's household. This term could be translated in your Bible, might have family. He calls the church the family of God. We've sung about being children, about being sons and daughters of the king. To be a part of the church is to be a part of God's household. But why, you may ask, did I then include this word adopted? Why did I include the word adopted? Now, to understand this correctly, I want you to flip to your Bibles, to the left, to Romans chapter 8. This is an important thing for us to understand as we begin this study. Don't worry, we won't be flipping around as much as we move on here, but we're going to start by looking at a few different passages. In Romans 8, verses 12 through 17, Paul is expressing to the Roman church the incredible reality of being children of God. And he describes how this happens, and he describes the wonder of this. And I just want to read Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Did you pick up on the adoption language? This idea of adoption is something that the New Testament authors use consistently to speak of how we, as believers, have been made a part of God's family. Not because we're the natural heirs. There is only one natural heir, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But we, as New Testament saints, get adopted into that family, into that household. We have been added to God's family on the merits of the true Son. We are now members of God's household because, if you will, our big brother Jesus earned us that right. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but that's what Paul is saying in Romans 8. He's saying the true heir earned your position, so now you are heirs with him. Because he did what you couldn't do. And so therefore, we know the church to be an adopted household. The church is composed of everyone who has been adopted into Christ's family. And this takes place by faith in Jesus Christ. The church is an adopted household. And that means, or how that adoption takes place, is clarified in verses 15 and 16, as Paul adds another reality of the church. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
He adds to the church being an adopted household that the church is a confessing pillar. Look at verse 15. He says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Then he clarifies, A pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in this flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He says the church is a confessing pillar. Paul calls the church a pillar, a buttress, a foundation and supporter of the truth. The church is formed by, created by, and called to confess the truth. It is both the nature of what forms us together as an entity and also the mandate of what we're to declare to the world, the truth of God's word, to teach everything that God has commanded us to do. And that means both generically teaching everything in Scripture, but also Paul seems to have something more specific in mind. What is that truth that he is talking about? What truth has the power both to call a people into God's household and to produce godliness in them? Paul gives his answer in the second half of verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This truth that he's talking about comes in the form of what's known as a creedal hymn. You'll notice it's probably offset by brackets in your Bible to let you know that this is a common, this is a poetic description, this is a creed, this is a confession, this is common language that people would have known to confess the truth, the core tenets of our faith. And he affirms Christ's incarnation and Christ's resurrection. Christ was manifested in the flesh, fully God, fully man, vindicated by the Spirit, his resurrection from the dead. These are things that we know to be true. In addition to that, Christ is affirmed both by heaven and earth. He was seen by angels, and he was proclaimed among the nations. Why? Because he's the savior of the world. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas. And then lastly, he was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. The Christ was received both on earth and in heaven as the savior. And so he lays out this creedal hymn, this definition of what the truth is that the church proclaims. In short, the church is created by and called to confess the gospel. It's called to confess the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is why we have creeds. This is why we have confessions and statements of faith in the church. Because the church is called to be a confessing pillar. You joined the church by a true profession of the gospel, by embracing in faith the grace that God offers through the truth of the gospel. That is how you become a part of the church. That is the church, the, the truth that the church is called to pillar and to buttress. These two components form the backbone of our understanding of the universal church, the church everywhere. So as a result, we can say this. What is the church? The church is this. The church is God's adopted household comprised of every redeemed believer. If you were to ask the question, what is the church, like we're asking, it is the household of God comprised of every redeemed believer, joined by faith in Jesus Christ alone. In that way, it's this common bond that joins people around the world and throughout time who have never met each other. Okay, this is going to be a poor illustration, so bear with me, okay? It's kind of like your social media friends list. 
okay? You probably have people on your friends list of your social media that you've never met in person. Is that true? Probably. You wouldn't admit it, you know, but like, probably. And there's this common bond, there's something that has tied you together that though you've never met in person and you don't actually know this person, in fact, it's a little bit frightening, the fact that you don't actually know this person, but there's this common bond. That's sort of the way the universal church works. It's invisible, you can't see it, but it's a common bond that we have with every other person that is a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. That is the universal church. Now, why is this critical to keep in mind? You're like, this doesn't really affect me, does it, Brad? Well, I would wager it does for at least three key reasons. The first is, the universal church stresses the personal nature of salvation. It reminds us that salvation requires personal faith. You don't join the church by the merits of your family. You don't join the church by the merits of your friends, by the people you hang out with. You don't join the church by attending a worship service every Sunday morning. You are only in the church by personal salvation in Jesus Christ. We have to keep that in mind because no amount of religious activity fundamentally makes you a part of the church if you haven't personally placed your faith in Jesus. It's also part of the reason at Faith Bible Church we don't baptize infants because you are not a part fundamentally of the covenant community until your personal profession of faith is affirmed. And an infant obviously cannot do that. So then baptism is for those who have placed their personal faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we teach and that's what we hold to, mostly because of this, because that's what the Word of God, we believe, teaches. But in addition to the stressing the personal nature of salvation, the universal church also highlights the overwhelming blessing of being a part of God's family. When I read that, were you overwhelmed by that reality? We ought to marvel at the fact that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are sons and daughters of the King. Think about that. Whatever identity crisis you're struggling with, whatever insufficiency or weakness you feel in yourself, God has declared through the truth of the gospel that you are a son or a daughter of the King. And that reality supersedes whatever you think about yourself. Whatever anyone else says about you, that is true if you've placed your faith in Jesus. So the universal church stresses the personal nature of salvation. It stresses the overwhelming blessing of being a part of God's family. It also reminds us that we're not alone. It reminds us that even as a local body, as a group of believers, we are not the only ones out there pursuing God's purpose for the world. We do not operate in isolation as if the whole Great Commission lands squarely on our shoulders. We have to do everything by ourselves. And that's an incredible encouragement, particularly as you recognize just how weak we are to accomplish anything of significant value. So what is the church? The church is God's adopted household, comprised of every redeemed believer. We have to establish that first. But God didn't call out the church simply so we could sit around and enjoy the fact that we have been adopted as sons and daughters. As incredible as that reality is, instead, God expects his church to fulfill a purpose. God expects the church to fulfill a purpose in this world. And so we shift from what the church is to why the church exists, from our personal call to our corporate task. Why does the church exist? Now, I mentioned that the term ecclesia is used throughout the New Testament. 
Now, the most concentrated use of that word in terms referencing the universal church is found in the book of Ephesians. So turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be spending the rest of our time in the book of Ephesians this morning. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's about in the middle of the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, we see this concentrated use of ecclesia in reference to the universal church. As a result, we'll be spending the rest of our time here in this book, jumping forward and backward in a few different places in the book of Ephesians. Now, as a side note, if you are new to Faith Bible Church, let me just tell you, this is not our normal way of preaching. As a rule, we preach first verse through last verse through books of the Bible. And that's what we're going to be doing when we get to 1 John and to Titus, but we're just establishing some framework here, some understanding that we need to. So we'll be back on that sort of an approach here in the coming weeks. But here, in the book of Ephesians, Paul lays out five additional foundational truths about the purpose for Christ's church. First, he says that the church is a universal mystery. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. Ephesians 3, verse 6 This mystery, which he's introduced earlier in the book, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's a couple of things that are worth noting here. He's speaking of this universal church and he calls that a mystery in verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, traditionally, this is what the church would have referred to as the Catholic nature of the church, meaning diverse or comprehensive, but obviously due to the confusion of the Roman Catholic church claiming to be the only true church, more often than not, we use the term universal. It is the holistic nature of the church. The church is a universal mystery. And the truth that he lays out here is that Christ has united all believers in the church. Do you see that? He says this mystery, which doesn't mean something like a whodunit. We tend to think that in terms of mystery. What he means is something that God didn't reveal before, and he has now revealed. He says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. He's speaking to the universal, united nature of the universal church. Now, the implication of that is fairly straightforward for us. Unity, then, in the church displays God's manifold wisdom to the heavenly powers. Did you see that in verse 10? Look back at verse 10. He says this, This mystery which was hidden has now been revealed, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's saying that God has made this church universal. He has united this church under one banner for the purpose of displaying God's wisdom to the heavenly authorities and powers. Is that not amazing? God has united the church together and he has done so to show something to the heavenly powers. He has done so to prove his incredible wisdom before the foundations of the world to everyone. 
church is a universal mystery. The church supersedes all other ethnic, national, cultural, familial, regional, and personal affiliations. It is this greater reality that supersedes time and space. And in that respect, I think I've said it before, but in this way, in the nature of what we share in common as the church, we have more in common with a believer in North Korea than we do with an unbelieving neighbor here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Because of the universal nature of the church, because what we share, this superseding truth, we have more in common with a believer that's in a whole other part of the world than we do with our own believing neighbors. That is an incredible reality of the church. The church is a universal mystery, but Paul doesn't stop there. Because when describing the preeminence and power of Christ, he also describes the church as his representative agent. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Read along with me. Paul writes this earlier in the book of Ephesians. And he put all things under his feet, speaking of Christ. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me read that again. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's talking about Christ's preeminence, how he is the authority over the entire world and everything that's ever been created. And he says at the end of that, and he's the head of the church. That Christ is the head, he is the leader, he is the one in charge of the church. This is fundamental, and I know this may go without saying, you're like, well, the head of the church is Christ. Yes, it is. But frequently we were tempted to think that's not the case. Frequently we either believe or act as if we're actually the ones in charge of the church. Do we not? The truth is that Christ is the head of the church. And the implication of this is then, as his body, as the church of Jesus Christ, our goal is to represent Christ to the world. That's what he means when he says in verse 23, which is his body, being the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's not that anything is lacking in Christ. He doesn't need anything extra. What he means here is that the church represents Christ to the world. The church functions like an embassy, like an ambassador overseas. You know how this works, right? We send ambassadors over to all different parts of the world, and the job of that ambassador, the job of that embassy is to represent the nation that sent him, to speak on their behalf, to act on their behalf, to work in their interests, to occupy some space there to represent the home nation to that place. We as the church today function like an embassy. Our job is to represent the king whom we have been sent by, to stand in to show the world what he values what he thinks is important, what he says we should do. The church is to be a representative agent for Christ on the world. So the church is this universal mystery. The church is this representative agent. But in order to fulfill both of these roles, the church must also be, Ephesians 5, a submissive body. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24. Now in this section, we get an incredible reality about the church within a longer dialogue about Christian marriage. I am not going to go through defining Christian marriage and everything he talks about here. But as 
providence would have it, I am teaching on that second hour over here in the fellowship hall. So if you're wondering about all the questions you may have about that, well, don't necessarily come to that class. I won't be able to answer all your questions, but I'll be teaching on the marriage dynamic of this text. But within this marriage dynamic, within this marriage text, Paul gives us an incredible reality about the church. He says the church is called to be a submissive body. Look at verses 22 through 24. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's the part I'll handle over there. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Did you pick up on the truth about the church? About the greater reality that Paul is speaking of here? He says, Christ is the Lord and Savior of the church. Because he is the one that saved the church, he is the one that has authority over the church. And the church's response ought to be submission. The church must seek to submit to Christ and his teaching in all things. The church is to be a submissive body. In order to be his representative agent... And in order to be this universal mystery that we are called to be, the church must be a submissive body. We will only be successful insofar as we listen to and obey the commands of the king. It's a mandate. The church can only be successful. We can only accomplish our purpose if we are listening to and obeying the king. If we are listening to and obeying Christ. Which is why in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. Because that's what it's going to take to fulfill the mission. The church is a submissive body. But in this same marriage section, Paul's letter, we also find a second reality of the church. In the following text, we find that the church is also a holy bride. Look at verses 25 through 32. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, he's talking about marriage. I'll address the husband's role here during the second hour. But here, he speaks to a greater reality than marriage in the truth of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. He says the church is to be a holy bride. The truth is that Christ is working to sanctify his church in preparation for the upcoming marriage. The final consummation when Christ returns and makes the church his bride for all eternity is coming. And in the meantime, Christ is sanctifying her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Church is to be a holy bride, and the implication of that for us as Christ's church is that we must pursue holiness. We must pursue looking like Christ through the washing of the word. Because how are we to know what Christ commands in order to obey it if we don't read what he has commanded? He says that Christ is sanctifying his church through the washing of the word to present to himself 
one that is holy and without blemish. As the church, we should pursue this sort of holiness. The church, we are a holy bride. The church is called to pursue actively holiness in our lives and in our gatherings. Which brings us to our final reality about the church. The church must finally be a promotional display. A promotional display. Look at Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. In one of my favorite texts in the entirety of the New Testament, Paul, in the middle of his in-depth theology about doctrine, breaks out in doxology of worship. After explaining the mystery of the gospel in verses 20 through 21, he proclaims the excellencies of Christ. Look at verse 20. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lastly, he calls the church a promotional display. The church was created by Christ to glorify the Father. Do you see that? To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. The church is to be this eternal, ongoing manifestation of God's glory, declaring the excellencies of God's incredible plan. And the implication is the church then, as the church, our chief aim should always be to glorify God. The key determining factor on anything that we do personally or corporately as a church should be God's glory and exalting Christ. Church is called to be a promotional display, to worship and glorify God in everything we do. And in that respect, the church is kind of like a billboard. The function of the church is, is like those big signs that you see on your way into Lincoln or as you're driving around. You know, Chipotle. And you go, I wonder what that, bur- or what that burrito is like. Right? It's to cause you to have a question. To say, what will that taste like? What will that be like? What does that function like? It's exactly how the church is supposed to function. We aren't supposed to be a mirror of the culture looking just like the world around us. We are supposed to be this exaggerated question mark on the landscape of culture that people look to us and say, why are they so different? Why are they so weird? Why do they not act like us? Why do they not look like us? Why do they not behave like us? Why do they not value the things we do? We're supposed to be this promotional display, and as they come before us, they go, why are you singing worship to this God? We shouldn't make sense to the culture around us, because we are to be a promotional display, exulting and worshiping the God we serve. These are the realities of what the church is here for. So I realize this is a bit clunky, it's a little bit long, we'll come back to it multiple times, but here's my definition for why the church exists. The church exists to glorify God by representing Christ on earth, bringing people into unity under the gospel and collectively pursuing holiness, all by submitting to every command of Christ. See that? The goal ought to be to glorify God. The means is by submitting to Christ in absolutely everything with the purpose being representing Christ bringing people to a salvation under the gospel and collectively pursuing holiness together as his bride. 
That is what the universal church is called to be. That is what the big C church is called to be. And this is distinct from what a local church is called to do. We'll talk about the local church in our time together next week. But this universal reality provides purpose and direction to then the local assemblies, the local manifestations of this reality. And we'll talk about that in the coming days. Which, again, brings us back to the question, why does this matter, Brad? What impact does it have on my own life? Let me put it to you this way. Having a good ecclesiology, a good doctrine of the church, is critical because it prevents two errors in the Christian. It prevents both what I would call the isolationist error and the universalist error. There are two ways we can err as we look about the church or as we function within the realities of the church in the New Testament. The first is the isolationist error, thinking that only our local church is everything that exists of Christ's church. This is something you can pick up a vibe on within churches, within nonprofits, within any number of different areas, where they think we're the only ones functioning to pursue holiness and to pursue God's mission for his church. Thinking we're the only ones that have a corner on the truth. We're the only ones that know what God really taught. And so therefore, the weight of God's great commission, the weight of Christ's great commission for his church falls squarely on our shoulders. I don't remember what the ministry was, but a few years back, I remember reading a mission statement by a ministry, and it was basically like, the mandate of our ministry is to accomplish the great commission in our lifetime. I was like, really? All by yourselves? This is that sort of isolationist error. Thinking that as one local church, we can accomplish everything the church is called to be. We make everything about just us. And we miss the universal reality of the church. But the second error that I think appropriate ecclesiology prevents is this universalist error. This thinking of only the universal church, only of the big C church, eliminating the sort of local assemblies that have been the case for the last 2,000 years. There's two ways this manifests itself, and forgive me. But the one is what I would call the kumbaya Christian. I don't know if you've ever run into anybody this, or if you've even been this way. This idea that there's no distinction within the church. There's no differences between local bodies and local assemblies. And we all just need to get together and have a big hug and, you know what I mean? Just get along. Irrelevant of doctrine. Irrelevant of the truth that we just talked about. This confession of the church. We make it all about the universal church and we miss the fact that local assemblies are called to proclaim truth. The other might be what I would call the privatized Christian. The Christian who so embraces the universal church that he or she totally misses the fact that we are called into local assemblies. The fact that the vast majority of Christ's teaching in the New Testament about the church is about local bodies of believers. The church in Ephesus, the church in Galatia, the church in Colossae, the church in Rome, the church in Thessalonica, the church in... I could go on and on. And we become so privatized because we say, I was saved as an individual. Amen, you were. But your Christian faith is not a private affair. Your Christian faith is a corporate affair. Though you were saved individually and privately, you are called into a community of God's people. It's also good because I think this sort of teaching provides a framework for our own personal ministry in the church. It puts our own personal obedience into perspective. It helps us understand what we're pursuing and what we are fighting for. It's funny because a lot of people, especially in business, one of the things is like people aren't working just for a paycheck, right? People want to have a cause. They want to have something that's bigger than themselves that they're aspiring to. 
There is no organization that has a cause bigger than themselves that they are aspiring to but the church of Jesus Christ. And we have to recognize what the universal church is here for so that we can say, that is what I'm pursuing. That is what my life is about. That is what God has called me to. It puts our personal obedience into perspective. Now, we're going to discuss all of these realities, hopefully, over the coming weeks as we talk about the implications of the local church, as we work our way through fellowship in 1 John, and as we talk about discipleship in the book of Titus. But hopefully, these seven realities, these seven truths about the church give us a common foundation for the rest of that discussion. As we come to realize that the church is an adopted household, brought into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, as we are a confessing pillar called to confess and declare the truth of God's word, we are a universal mystery united under the banner of Jesus Christ and a representative agent functioning as God's ambassadors here on earth. We are a submissive body submitting in everything to Christ as the head because we are called to be a holy bride, sanctified, to be married to our Savior one day at the consummation. And lastly, we are a promotional display, declaring the excellencies, declaring the glory, declaring the preeminence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What an incredible gift we have been given in the church. There is a reason that the New Testament refers to the church as the bride of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so humbled and so thankful that before the foundations of the world, you had a plan to draw people to yourself. Despite our rebellion and rejection of you, despite our desire to walk our own way, you sent Christ into the world. While we still hated and reviled you, you loved us. And as a result of your love, we love you back. We've been called into this incredible community. We've been restored to fellowship with you. And now we can cry, Abba, Father. Lord, I pray that over the coming months, over the coming weeks, that we would come to value and see the excellencies of your plan in your bride, the church. Make us a church that's faithful. Make us a church that is committed to your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.